take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We continue on in text that begins in verse 9. Paul lays out for us a series of statements. We can take them as exhortations that fill out the initial instruction of verse 1 of chapter 12 to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, to be able to to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And if you've ever wondered what is God's will, well, these verses answer that. Uh, They answer it really straightforwardly. Uh, We often like to think of God's will in terms of very specific things about our lives, you know, job and family and location and this specific direction and that specific issue. Quite frankly, those would be better handled if if first we looked at what God has said is His expectation for us all. And that is what we find in verses such as these. So we'll again read beginning in verse 9 and go to verse 13. So we're breaking off this text uh, to to take it just a, a bit at a time. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Well-known atheist, professor, author, speaker, Richard Dawkins, maybe a name you recognize, several years ago he, he made a really striking and perhaps to most of us offensive statement. Actually, that'd be a pretty long list. He's made a lot of offensive statements, as you can imagine an atheist would, but this one really seemed aggressive, in which he stated that Christianity is like a disease. It's like a virus. It's something where we'd all be better off if it could just somehow be eradicated. He went on to suggest that it was something more like the common cold, though, all right? It's going to be with us, and we're going to have to deal with it, so let's just learn to bear it. Now, obviously, I could go a lot of directions with that kind of a statement, right? In fact, it is ironic that a man who teaches at Oxford University says that we need to eradicate Christianity given the fact His school only exists because of Christianity. All right, so that said, I had another thought about his statement. It may strike us as odd, but the more I've thought about it, I think it's a good question. If he he compares Christianity to a disease, here's the question I thought of. If Christianity were a disease, if it were a virus, if it were a condition of some kind, what would the symptoms be? In other words, if if you are concerned that you've come down with a case of Christianity, all right, you go to WebMD to look at, you know, the latest 
Sorry to the healthcare professionals in here that I recommended the site, but that's not a recommendation. I'm just saying for the sake of illustration. Let's say you, let's say you went to WebMD and you started, you know, typing in. You maybe decided to Google symptoms. What are the symptoms? If I have a case of Christianity, what, how, do, how do I know? And maybe you could even ask that question slightly differently. If, if Christianity were a disease and it were contagious, would you be safe to be around <laughs> If it were a disease, if it were some kind of condition, does your life give evidence of the symptoms? Now, again, understanding kind of using a negative idea to make a positive comment, so we don't certainly want to take that illustration too far, I do find that helpful because I I think if you were to ask the question, well, what what are the symptoms? What are the marks of Christianity? What what does salvation look like in the life of somebody else? What, what should I see? What should be the attitude, the belief, the actions? And, and really even going beyond what would be the most important answer, and that would be, well, what I think about the gospel. In other words, do, do I believe in Christ crucified, resurrected, Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins? In other words, do I believe that, that core message of the gospel? Uh, obviously, that would be a part of it, but beyond that, what would be the more evident features? This is where a text like Romans 12, 9 through the end of the chapter, is really helpful. I mean, in a sense, that is what he's talking about. This, this, this is what it looks like. If you have these things, then you're infected, all right? If you've got these qualities that are listed out, and Paul lists out more than 20 of them in just the rest of this chapter, the, these, these are the signs, these are the indicators, these are the marks of Christian faithfulness. And so this is what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. So we've turned our attention to this text. We, we, we've, we've already noted that initial foundational statement of one and two, be a living sacrifice. We've talked some then about three through eight, where Paul then notes how being a live, living sacrifice influences my relationship with the church. I need to be serving in light of the gifts that God has given to me. And then now he strings together bullet point after bullet point after bullet point, Statement after statement, description after description, with very little commentary. Don't worry, though, I'll give plenty of that. All right, but with very little commentary, I know what you're thinking. Why is it taking so long if he gives very little commentary? All right, well, no need to say any more. It will just take us a long time to get through it. All right, but because all of these points, I I just find this really practical, really helpful, really straightforward. It's not like we're wrangling with the the theology of uh, Romans 9, all right, that, that we wrangled with for so, such a long amount of time. I mean, this, we're wrangling with this for a different reason. As Paul leaves, leaves all, all of me open. There's nowhere to hide from these phrases. And so we're taking it, again, a bit at a time. And so verses 9 through 13, we're looking at nine exhortations to Christian faithfulness. The mark of genuine Christian faithfulness Again, though there are going to be a lot more points, we are just trying to take them just a bit at a time, and we've looked at a couple already. First, we looked at the expectation that we would be loving, and that's how he started, started off there in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Then we noted last week, be holy, 
It's interesting, following up a statement on this love that is genuine, sincere, uh, without any pretense. It is a love that should be expressed regardless of whether it's being expressed to you. He then follows that up, I think, with a clarifying statement. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Love doesn't ignore the truth. Love recognizes that there, there is a particular way to love, and that love happens within the context of how God's Word has laid it out. My love for Him, my love for you. All, all, all of this, then, I think, is characterized by that phrase. And so, there is to be this love, and that is his thesis statement, but yet that's also to be done in holiness. This morning, we go on to number three. Paul turns his attention once again to the issue of love, Verse 10, he's going to give us two phrases in this verse, following up, again, that such a a clear statement about abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, then he's going to speak more emphatically about what love without hypocrisy would look like in the context of our relationship with other believers. Two phrases that I think can be summed up in this one phrase, a third exhortation. It's deep and profound, isn't it? Be kind. Be kind. How are we doing at this one? I mean, would would you generally characterize the nature of our society as as kindness? In other words, does that seem to be a prevalent quality and attribute? Well, sometimes sometimes not. Kindness, though, I think is, is a helpful way to summarize what are two important phrases about the expression of genuine Christian faith and obedience. The gospel should do this in me, and it should make me like this. Verse 10, these two phrases, we'll look at the first one. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Some of you may have a translation that says, be devoted to one another. Now, it doesn't really show up in the English translation as much, though the English translation does try and reflect this by using the phrase, kindly affectionate and brotherly love. It's not to get us weighted down too much in like nerdy Greek grammar stuff. All right, I told you I need to have a song, a little, little song that notes, let's everybody note, here we go. We're going to have to do it again, though, because the Bible may be much to your shock. It was not written in the King James, all right? It was not written in the King James. I know some of you are like, what is he talking about? We've got to find a new church, but it wasn't, all right? So, there is a nuance in the Greek language in a lot of words, and love is one of them. In fact, we noted when we talked about the phrase in verse 9, most well-known Greek word of love, and many of you would know it, is the word agape. It's a Greek word that a lot of people in, in church life know. It speaks of this unreserved, unconditional kind of love, meaning it, it, it initiates love. It doesn't love because love is first given. It's not this you know, quid pro quo kind of idea. So it's, it's a genuine kind of heartfelt love. Now we get to verse 10. Paul uses two more Greek words for love. 
The, the word phyla, phylos, and storge. Now, you don't have to write those down. I know, you know, you hear them, who really cares? Just a way for you to know, yes, I actually got schooling to do what I do, all right? So, Nonetheless, these are, it is, I think, very specific. We've said before, Paul doesn't do random. So the fact he opens up with what is the granddaddy of the Greek New Testament words for love. And then he clarifies it. And he talks about a kind of love, two different nuances of love. And that is like a devoted kind of love, a, a kind affection, and then a brotherly love. In fact, you're, you're familiar with the Greek word for brotherly love because you know the city, Philadelphia, right? Which is the city of brotherly love. So, so this, this is what shows up here in this verse. Paul kind of compounds Greek words of love. He, he stacks them on one another in order to really emphasize that love is not just this kind of, you know, cold, stoic duty. There should be a genuine affection, and notice his his direction of it. Be kindly affectionate. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Using that language, which is unique, by the way, to the New Testament, to Christianity of the day, that there would be this understanding that you and I, as fellow believers in Christ, can speak of one another as family. And so what have then we done traditionally as a church? Churches have referred to men as brothers and women as sisters, right? We, even though I don't know, do, you, do you sisters, do you all address one another this way? Do you walk up to each other and say, hey sister, do you all do that? I don't know. I, I don't think I hear that. Men for sure will call one another brother, right? It's pretty common even in our tradition and context. It reflects specific, unique New Testament instruction about the way we relate to one another. We should have this kind of devotion, this kind of commitment, this kind of care and concern for other believers in Christ to look out for their well-being, to be concerned about their best interest, that my desire should be to, to do what communicates love, biblically speaking, that you might then receive it. Again, the, the, the expectation placed upon me with that initial statement of verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, sincere, genuine, but also then let us with one another. Be kindly affectionate. You've got, you got to love the word affectionate. Now, I, you know, I think in our day and age we, we often associate that with a particular kind of intimacy, and I, I don't think we need to read that into it. Instead, it's just, have, it's just kind of a genuine kindness that you, you, you like the people you're with, and you show them that by, by relating to one another with kindness, with brotherly love, a certain kind of familial, family-related devotion to one another. Is this how you view the people next to you? This is how you view your connection with the church. In fact, I think a phrase like this is really helpful because it might clarify what is often a mistake. Many of us maybe got up this morning thinking church is something I'm going to attend. Language like this makes it clear. The New Testament never intended for us to think just in those categories. 
that the nature of this gathering is relational, and what should be at the heart and soul of it should be love, genuine care and concern and kindness for each other. This, by the way, shouldn't be surprising, because this is the language of Jesus Himself, right? Right? To me, one, one of the most shocking stories outside of the cross and resurrection, one of the most shocking stories in the New Testament is when Jesus is teaching people in a home and mom and brothers show up. Do you remember this story? Mom and brothers show up. So Mary and her boys show up. Uh, by the way, I'm just going to have to say, if you were raised Catholic, they're not cousins. They were brothers. They came from Mary, all right? Just to lay that out there clearly, okay, she had other children. She did. They're not cousins. You can fiddle with the Greek only because a pope fiddled with the Greek, but it's not, it, it's not okay? They are actual uh, brothers. You know what their concern is? Jesus is crazy. That's what they're concerned about. And they send word inside, Jesus, come on out. We need, to, we need to take you back home. And what do people tell him? So he gets word inside the house. Your mother's calling for you. Brothers, are, family's outside. And what is it that Jesus says in response? These are my brothers and sisters. These are my brothers and sisters. I don't care who's outside. I don't care if they're related <laughs> I don't care if her blood is my blood. My brothers and sisters are those who do the work of the kingdom. Those who are involved in this. Those who know me. Jesus changes everything with that kind of statement. Say, look, the nature of our relationships is such that we are knit together as if we are brothers and sisters. That's a profound picture of what the church should be like, of how the church should operate. In fact, let me state it this way. You like bold, shocking statements, right? If you have family who are unbelievers, you're a believer, hopefully most of the people around you are. I, don't, I mean, I don't know, perhaps know that for sure. I'll mention that in just a moment, all right? But hopefully the people around you are. I, I can tell you I am, all right? So we'll use myself as the other connection point. If you are a believer, I am a believer, you have family who are not. You and I are far more connected with one another than you are to them. Some of you may have to chew on that one. I understand. Yeah, that, that, that is indeed the... The implication of what's going on here, of this kind of statement, that's what, that's what undergirds it. That's why Paul gives this kind of command. It's an expectation that you and I would be this kind of people to one another. Now, what's interesting is he, he makes this comment in 1 Thessalonians. If we go on to the next slide, I think I have it up there. 1 Thessalonians then gives this statement. It's really more a commendation. He says to the church in Thessalonica, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God 
to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. You know, I can't help but read a verse like that and read that phrase, but concerning brotherly love, I have no need to write to you. Would he say that to us? If you got a letter from Paul, you're not, by the way. All right? If you come to me and say, I got a letter from Paul. All right, you didn't. Okay, it really wasn't from him. But if you were, would he be able to make this kind of statement? It's really a profound one. I have no need to write to you. However, Paul being Paul, what does he still do? He still writes about it, right? I mean, in other words, he says, I have no need to write to you. However, here you go. Here it is again. I want you to love your brothers. To you and I would be engaged in this kind of love for one another. It's profound. Now, he, he follows this up, though, then, with this next phrase. The end of verse 10, the next, the second one. In honor giving preference to one another. In honor, giving preference to one another. Now, there's a couple of different ways this phrase is taken. In fact, you may have a translation that says something more like, outdo one another in the showing of honor. Something more like that. Supersede one another in the showing of honor. There, there's some debate on exactly how this phrase should be laid out. Does this mean, is Paul giving me the instruction that I need to make it a priority to honor others? So in honor, give preference to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Or, because of the way the language is, is used there, the particular phrase that's used, do, does he mean to go before everybody in the giving of honor? I kind of like that one, by the way. I kind of like the idea that what Paul really means in this phrase, what, based on how the New King James has done it, uh, to, to, take, to favor some of those other translations, that really, really what he's getting at here, when it comes to the showing of honor, you should excel at being the best at it. Here's the way I thought that maybe you could put it. You should be first at not being first. You should be first at not not being first. In in honor, give preference to one another. So regardless really of what you do with the phrase, where you might think, how you might think it's worded, at the end of the day, you're getting to the same place. That as believers, part of our being kindly affectionate to one another, loving without hypocrisy, part, part of this expectation that we would show brotherly love is that we would prefer others, meaning we would give preference to them. We would seek that their needs be met. We would seek that, that, that what we do is for them. And that Paul is suggesting if, if this is a race, and, and the, the markers of the race involve saying who can run the fastest to make sure everybody else wins first, you should be first. You should be first at trying to be last. To maybe paraphrase another phrase that you might be familiar with. In honor, giving preference to one another. Outdoing one another in giving preference. 
honoring others. Again, I think the language of kindness is a fitting one as long as we go beyond just kind of the shallow idea of doing a kind thing for someone, meaning I want to orient my thinking about you and about my relationships with you in such a way that I want to do what I can do to love you, to serve you, to be devoted to you, give preference to you, to honor you. I wonder how well we do this. How good are we at verse 10? I mean, as individuals, and I think maybe even as a church, how good are we at this, at this kind of kindness? Because let let, let me ask you a question. Has there ever been any unkind treatment going on in churches? Yeah. But here's what's probably just happened. When I used that very phrase, when I said, has there ever been any unkindness in churches? My guess is every single one of us thought of the ways we had been treated unkindly. What about the ways you've treated people unkindly? And if you say, Pastor, I've never... Oh, no, that's not me. I am always kind. No, no, understand what I mean. What about the times when you were not kindly affectionate, giving brotherly love, and honoring others over yourself? That's what I mean. Because if you read through that and you say, Pastor, I've nailed it. Can we talk afterwards uh, for just a few minutes, all right? Because I don't want to pick on you, but I probably will, all right? In other words, that this, these, these verses should ring loudly in our minds. I think that's Paul's intent. I think that's, again, I think that's why he strings them together the way he does. Just this, you know, this kind of punch after punch after punch to us. Forcing us to evaluate where on the, at first we might would say, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good you know, believer. I think I do what God expects. Really? Do I? If Christianity were a disease, do I have it? What are the symptoms? These manifest themselves in my life. Love, holiness, kindness. And in fact, you know, that, that spot right there is, is a good one to stop at. All right, so don't worry. You're thinking, he's got more blanks here. All right, so I put in more blanks just so you don't know what I'm doing. All right? And you may think that's not very kind. All right, maybe not, okay? I'll rework that. Can you imagine? So just, just think of this for just a moment. Take just these phrases. Love without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate with brotherly love. Honor one another, giving preference to them. Do you think your life would be any better than it is now? I mean, and I really mean, just even on a shallow level, do you think life would be better or worse if you did just that? Husbands, wives, what would your relationship be like if it were that? 
Boy, we love to make life complicated, don't we? We live in a culture that loves to make life complicated. And then we all just get, get together and let's just commiserate and whine about how complicated things can be. And then the Bible comes screaming into that and saying, maybe it's not quite that complicated. Not saying that it's necessarily easy, but just do these things. Do these things. In fact, really, I think what better instruction could we give in relationships of any kind than verse 10? I, I doubt you're going you're gonna to hit the pillow at night. That head's not going to hit the pillow at night thinking, oh, man, it's too affectionate today. <laughs> ah, you know what? I'm going to lay here all night because I honored other people. And that's just going to drive me nuts. I'm going to stay here all night. Just the guilt. I'll be racked with guilt because I gave preference to somebody else. That probably doesn't happen, right? Now, as we bring this to a close, we, we would though miss the point, I think, if we don't then draw out another connection. When you look at the language, be kindly affectionate to one another, brotherly love, this devotion to others, in honor give preference. Can you think of anybody who did that? That's Jesus, right? In other words, when we look at this, we recognize that this is nothing more than what Jesus himself did. No greater love has man than this for his friend than he'd lay down his life for that friend. You want to talk about devotion? You want to talk about love without hypocrisy? You want to talk about honoring others? How about the one who left heaven, who did not consider it robbery to hold on to what was his heavenly position, but he made himself nothing, humbling himself even to become a slave that you and I might be recipients of salvation, becoming like a man unto death. In other words, every one of us sitting here who knows Christ as Savior have been the recipients of this. Verse 10, that's what Jesus has done. He set aside His own right to to rule and reign over the earth when He came and humbled Himself to death on a cross. We read these words and we are reminded of that ultimate example of love and devotion and honor. In particular, when you're thinking about this, well, you really mean I need to love and honor and give preference to and be affectionate toward that person, whoever that person is? I I know this may not be why you came to church this morning, but there's nobody in your life that was harder to love than would have been you for to be loved by Jesus. All right, in other words, I mean, we all, we all are, are rebels and sinners, and yet God, in His sovereign grace, gave me life when I deserved death, forgave me when I deserved wrath, gave me a seat at His table when I should have been cast out of His presence. In other words, it is the gospel that still fuels all this. I don't want to leave this time this morning and any of these without reminding us that the means by which you and I as believers see this in our lives is directly because of the gospel in us, because of what Christ has done in us and to us and for us, and then what He can then do 
through us, that this love is manifested through us because it was first manifested to us. So believer, if you hear these things and you feel that burden on the heart, that's good. It's good because we should be convicted by the ways in which we fail to live as fully devoted followers of Christ, but also be encouraged because the cross covers that unfaithfulness. And you and I can be brought back then into proper fellowship and walk in obedience to Him. This morning we're going to sing... We're going to sing about that great work of the cross on our behalf and how that is still our greatest need. If you are a believer here today and you would look at these things that we've talked about and even those other phrases that come ahead, if you've been reading ahead, you'd say, Pastor, that that really feels like a burden. The good news is, is that God by His gospel has saved you and forgiven you. God's grace covers you that you might then live in faithfulness and obedience to Him. If you'd say, these qualities are not mine, then I would encourage you. You could, you could come down here and pray. I'd pray with you. You could pray where you are as we sing that you would once again just yield yourself in, in faithful obedience to your Savior. Of course, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, uh, understand what we've talked about is not available to you yet. And that, in fact, you don't sit at His table you, you come under His wrath. If you've never confessed Christ crucified and resurrected, ask God to forgive you based on what Christ and Christ alone has done for you. Then you stand outside of fellowship with God and outside of fellowship with His people. But if you'd come in faith and repentance, confessing your sin, confessing Christ crucified and resurrected, you can be saved, forgiven, brought into the family. How would you then respond to the Word of God being brought to bear on your life? Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, we will sing together. Again, I'll be down front if you'd like to know more about the saving work of Christ. Father God, we thank You for gathering Your people. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You most of all for the sacrifice of our Savior. We thank You, God, that And He was the one who showed love without hypocrisy. That He was the one who abhorred evil and He clung to what is good. That He showed genuine devotion and honor and preference to us. Taking on the form of a man, being obedient to death and even death on the cross. We thank You, God, that You have done what needed to be done that we might be saved. And God, we come asking that You by Your Spirit would bring Your Word to bear on our lives, that we might continue to walk in faithfulness to You, that we might love, that we might be holy, that we might be kind, so that we would be effective servants in Your hands, living for Your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.